You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am your fundamental host, Abraham. And I am your errorful co-host, Shane. Nice. Attributing co- I don't know. I'm Shane. (laughs) It was a valiant effort. I should probably actually write down what I'm going to say first, because I always just make it up right when we hit record, and then sometimes it lands, and probably most of the time it doesn't. <laughs> like, I think if if we've learned anything in life, spending more time thinking about something is always better. But also, it's still a lot of fun to kind of just maybe see what happens and where we go with this. So, I like improv. Awesome. All right. Well, welcome to our improv podcast. If this is your first time listening, we are... Actually, a psychology show. Maybe you wouldn't be able to tell from the opening, but that's what we do. Yeah, we're the yes ands of psychology podcast. Love it. I wish that was the case. <laughs> we do a lot of improv and some of it works. But anyway, so this is this is a psychology podcast and we're trying to talk about fun stuff or I guess really sciencey stuff and make it fun. And today we are going to start with a little thought experiment. Okay. Will you be my, okay. my participant here, Shane? Yeah, of course. I consent. Okay, thank you. All <laughs> right, so I want you to think about you're driving down the road, and you're maybe speeding, driving really fast, you're changing lanes really quickly, you're maybe even being a little bit aggressive, making a few mistakes. Why did you do that? <laughs> this, this is funny because this couldn't be more the opposite of how I drive, but... Why I would do that in any context, I would probably do that because I'm trying to get somewhere in a hurry because there's an emergency. Okay, makes sense. All right, now let's say you're driving the way you normally drive down the road, like driving this Daisy, I'm assuming, based on your comment. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Five miles on, under the speed limit and directly in your lanes as if you were- <laughs> All the time. Yeah. I never change lanes unless I absolutely have to. <laughs> Great. Okay. And so you see someone else just- careening down the road out of control fast maybe swerving changing lanes really aggressively what do you what do you think is your immediate reaction to that i have two specific reactions that always happen when this 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 goes down okay my first thought is i immediately go son of a that's the first thing i do but then the second thing i do is that i always go god i wish there was a cop around here right now (laughs) and that's just usually my reaction yeah Okay, so perfect. That was a really good example. We can see that if it if it's you, then you immediately think about what would have me drive this way. Mm-hmm. And if it's somebody else, the immediate reaction is you're an <laughs> And so, but and there's a difference, right? Like you don't necessarily think of yourself as like, oh, I'm the <laughs> here. But that's how we react when we see other people. Now, there is a very famous psychologist, at least famous in sort of our, our circles, named Pat Fryman. Mm-hmm. And I've heard him give this description about th- how to think about this sort of thing, which is that if you see someone driving like that, and then you learn that they maybe have someone bleeding out in the back seat and they're trying to get to the hospital as quickly as possible, then you immediately realize, like, wow, that is totally justified. I would be driving like that too, right? Right. We get we're, they're driving that way. And his point is assume that everybody has got someone bleeding out in their back seat, which is to say, there is always some reason that they're doing what they're doing. Right. And that rather than react in that way of judgment about who you are and what you are, you think about what is the person bleeding out in your backseat in this, in this case? 
not who, <laughs> but the but the what, you know? I actually really like that thought experiment to kind of like put that into perspective because then knowing how I respond, I go, well, why is that person bleeding in their backseat? Who is that person that's bleeding in their backseat? What, <laughs> what led to them getting to that point? So it just creates this like kind of unique narrative about the thing. And then I just forget why I was upset with them in the first place. Like that's how my, like, I'm just like, oh, like I want to know the story of how somebody ended up in that situation is it a reservoir dogs thing is that mr pink driving like i have all those questions that go along with that so rather than think like what what's the metaphor here i'm supposed to be learning you're like wow that person's got to be a criminal if they've got someone bleeding on their backseat <laughs> right that's i i can't help but kind of go to that that route i and i don't know what that says about my learning history but here we are well Okay, so we kind of buried the lead here a little bit, which is that we're talking about fundamental attribution error in this in this episode, and we're going to explain that in just a moment. Let's use this as a segue for another little bit of a story. Let's do it. So, on October 5th, 1995, <laughs> friend of the podcast, Rush Limbaugh... <laughs> <laughs> as a, a tongue-in-cheek... Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> just to be clear, everyone, we're using the tongue-in-cheek way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He came out and had this quote to say, there's nothing good about drug use. We know it. It destroys individuals. It destroys families. Drug use destroys societies. Drug use, some might say, is destroying this country. And we have laws against selling drugs, pushing drugs, using drugs, importing drugs. And the laws are good because we know what happens to people in societies and neighborhoods which become consumed by them. And so if people are violating the law by doing drugs, they ought to be accused and they ought to be convicted and they ought to be sent up, end quote. Very empathetic toward the drug plight there. Yeah, definitely doesn't take a side in the war on drugs. Right. So obviously coming out very strong saying essentially these are bad people. They're doing bad things. Therefore, they deserve harsh punishment. That's sort of the summary gist of how I would interpret that longish quote. All right. Interesting follow up to this story. Eight years later, he was under investigation for drug use. Specifically, he was illegally obtaining prescription pain medication which he admitted he had been doing for years. So what he would do is he would get a prescription for a pain medication. He would fill it at one pharmacist, then go to another pharmacist and get it filled again, then go to another pharmacist and get it filled again. And he would keep filling on the same prescription. So we had this large cache of pills and then he would take them in the much, much higher than prescribed doses. And he became addicted to these pain pills doing this. So he was one of these sort of pill popping drug addicts, if you will, and I think many people have pointed out the fine line between over-the-counter prescription drugs and deregulated classified drugs as being like, they're not horrifically different from one another, you know, other than right. like the doses are in some of them are tapered to a specific amount, but then you can take as many as you want to get the desired effect. So anyway, point being, and we don't know whether or not he was using drugs at the time that he had that quote. But we do know that after that quote, within some short period of years, at least, he started doing this and so sort of became the person he was describing. However, obviously, he said in response to this, like, OK, I'm going to go get help. I was using it for back pain that I was experiencing, that sort of thing. And like, I, I know that I made a mistake. I'm going to go get this fixed. And so he nevertheless still had that. I guess I can't say that he still had the opinion. He had that approach of when other people do it, it's bad. When I do it, it's justified. Right. And that's actually kind of the crux of what we're going to get into today. And you'll see that as we kind of go through this, that we you're going to see that people do this all the time, including ourselves. And, and so it's it's really kind of difficult to capture it and note it and change the behavior around it. So you don't continue to do this and misattribute 
certain issues to certain things. Like you'll see as we kind of like go through a few different thought exercises that perspective taking is important, I guess is what it comes down to. Right. So to avoid making fundamental attribution error ourselves against Rush Limbaugh, understanding that there are a lot of circumstances that led to him saying that and circumstances that led to him using those pills. And we're not judging him either way or attributing the cause of his actions to anything inherent to him. It was the circumstance he was in produced the the thing that we saw about him. And some of those things were not good, <laughs> but that doesn't right. mean that it was we're saying that he is inherently bad, just that he done bad things. He has not done some great things. So anyway, we're going to define fundamental attribution error. We're going to describe it talk about why we do it, and provide some suggestions for how to fix it, as well as a, a little bit of a overview of some of the criticisms some people may have about this idea. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. So let's start with a definition. Now, the definition of fundamental attribution error talks about the tendency to attribute the causes of behavior to characteristics while explaining our own behavior as being influenced by uncontrollable external factors. So basically, we say that this person does this because they are this kind of person. They are a monster. They are awful. They are this. But then when we do the same things, we go, oh, well, some, there's something else. I, you know, In this context, I didn't murder this person. They were bleeding out my back seat, and this is all the best. You know, we we kind of maybe make justifications for our own behavior where we won't do that for other people. Right. So this does come from a long history of research in social psychology, starting with in the forties, I believe with a description of something called attribution theory. I'm actually not sure if I called it that at that time, but it eventually became known as attribution theory. But this fundamental attribution error is also sometimes referred to as the attribution effect or correspondence bias. And this is similar to, but slightly different from the self-serving bias, which will come up a few times. And the self-serving bias is taking credit for the good things we do, but blaming others for the bad things we do. Is there anybody we can think of hmm. who does that? Hmm. There is a good example of this from the U.S. version of The Office that I believe I've used on the show before. The character Michael Scott says, to be honest with you, I would like all of the credit without any of the blame. And I love that line so much because it's so, so honest about yeah. who that character is and how so many people are, but they don't say it like it's something that we, we know, but we don't necessarily say. So that's right. a similar thing to what we're talking about with the self-serving bias, which is different from what we're talking about with the fundamental attribution error, a.k.a. attribution effect, a.k.a. correspondence bias. Yeah. So the term was originally coined by i keep wanting to say david lee roth but this person is lee david ross in 1977 so i guess they were kind of doing the same work around the same time van halen was big in the 70s like the late 70s and lee david ross was big in attribution effect in this time yeah but anyway <laughs> a 1967 study conducted by Edward Jones and Victor Harris, in which participants read essays about Fidel Castro, some in favor of him and some against him. This is going to be really interesting, I think. So some participants were told that the essay writers had chosen to write their essays. Other participants were told that the position of the author of the essay was determined by a coin toss, that is, by chance. So they had to they had to write based on a coin toss and not their actual opinions. Yeah. Even hearing that the authors had been randomly assigned pro or anti-Castro by a coin toss, people still assumed that the opinion expressed by the authors reflected their actual attitudes and beliefs. So it didn't matter that there was a coin toss. The perspective was still given to that author regardless. Right. And so... 
Upon seeing this research, David Lee Ross, Lee David Ross, David, oh my, I did it too. <laughs> Lee David Ross, we'll just call him Ross. He mm -hmm. threw open his bedroom window and yelled, Eureka! And so he coined the term, the fundamental attribution error, following up on the attribution theory as it had been described. So anyway, in his paper, if you read it from this 1977 paper that he published, he very clearly has a bone to pick with behaviorism which seemed part of his motivation to explore and describe fundamental attribution error more theory. I'm trying to not make fundamental attribution error about <laughs> Lee Ross, about Ross. But the first like three pages are just like, this is fundamental attribution error thing is so cool because it's so anti-behaviorism. And I, I don't understand his position on that. It seemed very nonsensical to me because reading this, this research and coming in contact with it, it seemed like it's very behavioral to me. And that's what I was like, kind of reading this. I was like, I don't understand how you glean that from reading this because it literally talks about what people are doing and not who they are. Like it's actually like less about personality traits and so much more about what people are doing. Like right. it is like almost just like the, the very definition of behaviorism, but it's just funny. This guy is not thrilled with it. Yeah. So I think some motivation there potentially Maybe he was wronged by a behaviorist at some point in his career. <laughs> Who knows? It's like that Disney movie, Meet the Robinsons, where it's like the villain was like wronged accidentally and became a villain and started wearing a bowler hat and traveled through time to cause issues. Like that's what this person, he was, he was wronged by a behavior and it's like, oh, I'm going to get them. I'm going to show Skinner. I'm going to, I'm going to stand with Chomsky. And it's like, and here we are. It's like, you're actually just kind of digging your heels into like a pretty strong behavioral perspective. Yeah. So, although Ross coined that term, the fundamental attribution error, based in part by the study of Jones and Harris, social psychologists had been studying this effect, as I said, for quite some time since the 1940s. We're not going to dig into all the research that led up to this, but it really is, it's basically what we just described. It is showing that people, when they attribute their, their actions to causes, they're trying to essentially determine what the cause of people's actions are by observing someone else's behavior that they will lean toward either external or internal factors. So just said it another way, they have a group of people who are observing other people and the observing group, the people who are doing the watching here, they will tend to apply the certain lens to understanding other people's behavior as assuming that the cause of their behavior is either internal or external. And it has to do with, I guess, how much context they have, which we're going to sort of get into here that when they then reflect on their own behavior that they don't that they think about like oh that's because i was in a hurry or had this thing going on or i was worried about this or what, there was some circumstance that was related to their their behavior so that's sort of the the general framework for this yeah so let's take a little bit of time to kind of unpack this and really get into the minutia of of this particular effect or error I mean, that's going to be kind of the bread and butter of this particular episode is we're really going to spend a lot of time kind of getting into this. So we do have an example of Dwight from the U.S. office on Dwight's first impressions of Pam. Yeah. So another another office reference. I didn't mean to throw so many in here, but in this episode, this is the, the Tallahassee episode. And Dwight was talking about how important first impressions are. And he says, first impressions get locked in. When I first met Pam, she said something that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. and. <laughs> Ever since then, I've grown to know her and I really like it's just talks about like she's wonderful to work with and just a delightful human, but I hate her. <laughs> it was because that first impression was locked in like that. So 
anyway, sort of the the idea here of the error of attributing the characteristic to somebody. Yeah, and you'll see this too. Like, let's say a neighbor is shocked when someone does something terrible. Like, they may see somebody in the neighborhood do something awful. Should they have been able to detect this potential issue or this maybe quote unquote characteristic for this from this person in everyday interactions? I mean, you see this all the time. I never thought that they would be capable of something so horrible. Right. I never. I I can't believe they were always so nice to me. But da, 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 like you kind of see that in in if you just watch any news interview. Right. I can't believe it happened right down the road. And you see this kind of thing happen. It's just such a funny kind of missed opportunity to look at. Like, could they have detected something? Could they have seen something in this person before that happened? You're exactly right that this this is one of those examples where there's the tendency to fall on the idea that someone is a monster when they have done something monstrous. And, you know, when you learn that your neighbor has been doing this horrible thing, like, wow, I've talked to them. They always seem so nice. And then thinking that, like, what you see is a reflection of who that character is rather than what their motivations, what their circumstances are every time that you encounter them, even though those are the things that are influencing their behavior the most. And so I think sometimes people will even beat themselves up over, I should have seen this coming from somebody, but it's like, you you can't know what the circumstances were and people don't necessarily behave as these mech suits for their... <laughs> You know, their id ego just sort of driving, or I guess just the ego, but their their ego driving their impulse behaviors. As we kind of go through this, you're going to start seeing our language shift a little bit because language really is important in understanding how this error occurs. It's subtle, but we have to look at, in our language, how we describe what people do, not who they are, not how a person is. And that's a really very different distinction. Like when we describe Bill Cosby as being a monster, like he did some really awful things, right? We're describing what he's done, not what he is. I mean, we could probably make the argument that he is a monster, but what we are saying is a lot of the stuff that people attribute the the issue with is what he does, what he's doing, what he did. That is the, the language that we really want to focus on versus what he is. We're looking at what, the, what he did or what people do. Yeah, and I mean, it, it really is just this failure to account for those situational factors that may have resulted in someone making a poor or even unethical choice. That has us then making a mistake. You know, if we are the, assuming something about who somebody is rather than understanding what they've done and being able to separate those two ideas, then we can often, I guess, have really extreme reactions to things or sort of overdo it, like the over overkill of like, if someone has done something, we need to avenge that wrong uh, many times over, you know, like really get back at them. And it's because that person really deserves it because of who they are as a person, rather than they've done something bad, that something bad shouldn't go necessarily go just be forgiven because there were circumstantial factors. And we'll get to that in a moment. But understanding that there were circumstantial factors and that those played a relevant role in how they came to do the bad thing that they've done. This kind of happens a lot when victim blaming kind of starts to take place, right? Like you'll see people that get blamed for something that happened when it's not part of, they'll say like, oh, the, you know, this person, you know, they shouldn't have been in that situation. They were somebody who likes to party. They were always drunk. They were out at clubs and you'll hear somebody get victimized, like the, who is a victim of an assault be described as the reason why the assault happened. And that is not the case at all. It's, it has nothing to do with 
their nightlife or their lifestyle or anything like that. They, if something happened to them, you see this a lot in the Black Lives Matter movement where somebody who is a victim of some kind of police brutality will be described as like, oh, well, they were a criminal. They, uh, You've seen that happen a lot. A lot of their character kind of gets like tarnished as a part of this type of error when the truth is like they weren't doing anything in that moment and they were victimized. And here we are in this really bad spot. Right. Well, in either way, like when someone is the victim of some kind of brutality or violence to blame it on them at all is just like, it's weird. It doesn't matter what they've done. Like, I think if we want to be humanitarian here, then we treat all people as deserving to be treated like humans, no matter how badly they've behaved. And like that is really hard to do sometimes when people have done terrible, horrible things that are absolutely unforgivable. But that doesn't mean that we then go result in torturing them, you know, because then then we're saying that, like, under some circumstances, this kind of behavior is justified. And I think we just need to conclude that this behavior is just never justified. Like we just we don't torture other humans. This is not something we should ever do. Right. Agreed. Awesome. As a humanitarian podcast. (laughs) That that is the goal. All right. So. Understanding why someone did what they did allows us to explain behavior. And this is one of the important caveats here that actually I've been sort of alluding to with this whole section here. It's just not justifying it. We're not making an excuse for inappropriate behavior. We're not condoning inappropriate behavior or this bad behavior, these poor choices. Instead, what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand it. We're trying to make sense of it and be able to get some context. And there's many reasons for doing this. One, I think it allows us to make much more appropriate decisions about what to do with that person with respect to their behavior. Two is I think it allows us to get a lot more closure about the nature of that incident. Um, Personally, maybe I'm wrong about that. And three, and probably much more importantly, is it allows us to make predictions about what someone is likely to do again in the future. Anybody, you know, is if we just chalk everything up to characteristic, well, then there's no predicting what anybody's ever going to do because it's just who they are. Versus if we understand the circumstances that led to that kind of behavior, then we can look for those circumstances again and change them so that we're unlikely to see that kind of behavior again. Right. And you'll see this specifically in Rush Limbaugh's issue with uh, the error towards people with drug addiction, because basically what he's saying is people who use drugs are bad and are ruining society. So by that accounting of the issue, it becomes this really widely unpredictable all attributed to just anybody who uses any drug ever is a bad person. And it doesn't really account for what's actually happening or the context in which that behavior is happening. So when you really get into the minutia of drug addiction, it's incredibly complicated. Every circumstance is different. Every use is different. Every ritual, every social aspect of it, it's so unique to every addict that to attribute it to all drugs are bad and it's ruining society is just such it kind of like sweeps it under the rug and doesn't actually take the time to account for those contexts. It's an incredibly nuanced conversation. I've really been wanting to tackle that on this podcast. I've just been scared because it's such a big topic with so many caveats. And it's like there's just no blanket statement you can make that's going to be satisfying that's totally accurate. You just you just have to discuss sort of every circumstance that you can think of. And I think that's also relevant here, talking about this fundamental attribution error. So again, we've talked about this is when we attribute people's behavior to internal causes rather than their circumstances, except ourselves, which is where we inter- we attribute our behavior to those circumstances we're aware of. And I mean, I think the relevant feature here is that we must be particularly attentive to this for ourselves. You know, notice when we're doing this about other people, notice when we're making excuses for ourselves. 
And that I think will allow us to be better about acknowledging when we're sort of engaging in this as a sort of human bias thing that we do. You know, one of the things that we want to try to account for is we want to be able to reserve judgment until we have more information. And I think that's part of just being a healthy skeptic, being able to kind of before you make a final judgment or being prepared to kind of change your your thought about something with new information. That's really what we're asking here. And, and so, of course, we can always ask someone, why do you do that? Why do you do what you do? I mean, that's the entire 193 episodes that we've been asking this entire time. What why do we do what we do? And so we can ask people that because I think that gives more context for maybe particular motivations. It gives more information about like what might be influencing that behavior. And really, you know, you'll find that 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 type of approach will open your perspective on just kind of how people live their lives or how they see the world. As we said, we're very aware of the factors that have influenced us throughout the day, throughout the week, the month, the year, et cetera. We're very aware of the situational factors and circumstances that influence our own behavior. But we don't know what those factors are for other people. Although one important caveat here is, of course, the better we know someone, the more we know about the factors that are influencing them. So we are more likely to make to have this understanding. You've probably had the experience of watching one friend comfort another friend where someone has said, like, they, they were sort of complaining about a situation where they maybe did something and they're saying like, oh, well, I did this, but that's because blah, 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 whatever. And then you hear the other friend say, oh, that's totally understandable. I get that. You know, I, I know what you're saying. I would do the same thing. And you get a lot of the sympathy statements, which I think is, is interesting from a social factor, just considering what is going on there. But you also get to get a glimpse of the opposite of this effect of someone who's like, I know you, you're explaining your circumstances to me. Therefore, I can understand your behavior, even though someone else may have been upset about it. Because to them, they're thinking, wow, you are a Karen and I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Being a real Karen right now. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Versus someone who's listening going, that person was maybe part of the, the, the other receiving end of what was going on versus the friend who's, who's having an empathetic ear saying like, no, I get it. That's totally justified. So I think just having that context is helpful as well. You know, now you bring up the issue of Karens. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like people really love watching public freakout videos, like watching people just like have meltdowns and lose it and like customer service stuff. And I don't think that that's ever been a comfortable thing for me to watch Yeah, because I know there's something else going on. Right. Like you can't help but step back and be like, that person is just snapped because there's something else happening. It is not like, this is not who they are all the time. Like something happened in this person's day, and this was just the straw that broke the camel's back, and here we are, we don't know what it is, so be kind, because now this person's on the internet, and now they're losing their job, and all kinds of stuff like that. We're going to talk about that on another episode, but it's a shame to watch that happen. Yeah, and as sort of a, a related note to that, there's a guy on YouTube who takes those public freakout videos, and he puts metal music over it, and <laughs> it's so much fun to watch, because he always... He always specifically coordinates the timing of the rhythm with their yelling. And yes. so it's it sounds like an actual metal song and it's it's pretty amusing. I really enjoy that. So Is it the guy that just did that with uh the pastor? Yes, that's the one. It's so good. It, it, I mean yeah, it's impressive. Uh, like it's you as a musician you're like, "Wow. Like he composed this he did this whole arrangement around this guy's vocal patterns and that guy's speech is is very very metal." <laughs> yeah, that's yes, very accurate. So so back to Rush Limbaugh. 
Oh yeah, Rush Limbaugh, great. <laughs> so, you know, when we start looking at this issue, Rush Limbaugh, he might say something like, I'm not bad, I was afflicted by serious back pain. I had an issue, I'm not a bad person. But for us, you know, it might be like, well, what's going on for another drug addicted person? They didn't start the agenda, let's destroy the country. I know, I'll shoot up heroin, I'll buy over-the-counter pills, I'll destroy it one needle at a time. Nobody's doing that, right? Like, it's not that they're bad people, they're not, like, it's not some evil scheme, because it's actually, if you think about it, that's a really awful evil scheme anyway like it doesn't make any sense but when you start kind of adding context or adding layers or adding information you start kind of peeling back like oh this person's not bad they're just a product of their environment there's some issue going on there's some other thing happening here and you know like while we kind of joke and like we might not particularly like Rush Limbaugh, like you can take account you can kind of take a step back and be like there were context there were variables there were things that attributed to him getting into that type of thing doesn't necessarily make him a bad person. Yeah, I definitely feel like this is way more talking about Rush Limbaugh than I ever thought we would do. Yeah, I did not think podcast. that we were going to start this podcast and then talk about Rush Limbaugh as much. I think that the fact that I don't think I've said his name this much ever in my life. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear to people which way we tend to lean politically, but I will say I try and be as objective as possible. There are many people who are on the other side of the spectrum that I find very distasteful to listen to. Bill Maher is one. Some of the stuff that comes on the Huffington Post is just like, come on. So yeah. I will say that like I try and be as critical of everything as possible. And I think Rush Limbaugh is just a very abrasive person, almost objectively a very abrasive person. So yeah, anybody's going to be that much of a jerk. It's hard to listen to. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, the, like we all jokes aside, I mean, we, we try to we try to always take a contextualist approach to looking at like what might be this issue, what might be this thing. We try to take a humanitarian approach and like give everybody the benefit of the doubt and just kind of see like, you know, this person deserves a chance. This person deserves like, you know, human beings deserve an opportunity to do better. And that's kind of the main one of our main values here, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so getting back on track again. <laughs> Love our side detours here. They're really fun. There is this alternative effect that can happen. We've been describing this fundamental attribution error where people are misattributing causes to internal factors as, as opposed to external factors, except when it comes to themselves. However, there can be this other extreme that they describe in the research where we overemphasize those external factors. I mean, so this is called the actor-observer bias is, is how it's described. And this is one where it's difficult for me because I'm thinking, how do you overestimate external factors? They're ever they're everything. Like they're pretty much everything. The characteristics we think of as being characteristics when they become so firm that we call them a personality still came from external factors. Right. Maybe to be charitable here, the they're thinking about like what is the immediate influencing variable, but then you have to define what does immediate mean to you. And like you have to draw a line in the sand that's somewhat arbitrary about. At what point in history do we stop saying this is a contributing factor and is just who that person is? And so I think it's silly to me to think that you can overemphasize those external factors, or at least it's hard for me to wrap my head around. I wonder if it's less about overemphasizing it and more about like attributing too much to the external factors to the degree that you're not looking at accountability like i think maybe that's to me okay. like it sounds like that might maybe what they're trying to talk about is like the outcome of of over like over attributing okay. to that stuff like to me that's that's how i would read it okay that makes more sense but i mean i don't know because maybe i just don't that might not be clear anywhere which you know if we're talking about science it should be a little bit clearer i appreciate that because i was i was trying to figure out what that could mean but i think that you're right that there is 
if if we're going to go to the extreme of like essentially excusing poor behavior or justifying it as being acceptable when it's it's not, that would not be productive either. So that's a, a useful framework to bring to it. I'm gonna I'm gonna be charitable and assume that's what they mean by that, but <laughs> I appreciate your reining things in a little bit. And and I wanted to, you know, I, I wasn't trying to take an extreme position. I wanted to feel like I had a a critical lens to view that through. So yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting to have this discussion around like around this particular thing, because as behaviorists, like we tend to know or like at least we tend to attribute like motivations and factors around the environment for like that's how we account for behavior. The environment acts upon behavior. Right. And so we we kind of do that already. Um, so like like you said, like how can you overemphasize that? Because that is literally all. <laughs> I mean, it's almost all of it. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's just interesting. So, so yeah, as far as we can tell, I mean, I guess. There are biologically relevant factors to consider. Things like chemicals can certainly influence behavior in a certain way. I would call chemicals external, less predictable maybe than some of the other things. Yeah. But right. anyway, let's get into some more. We've been describing this topic in a fairly black and white way, which is that there is this tendency that people have that they overemphasize internal factors for people's behavior for others, but then they emphasize external factors for their own behavior. But there's, there's actually more nuance than that because there are some cultural and age differences. As you can imagine, the fundamental attribution error, as we've described it, was described by Western psychologists in a Western psychology paradigm. And a researcher named, I only cut the last name, Miller, in 1984, published a study that found that American children demonstrated an increased tendency to assign behavior to those dispositional or character personal causes as they grow older. Whereas Hindu children in India instead tended to begin with an assumption that there are circumstances influencing people's behavior and they maintain that position as they get older. So the fact that the fundamental attribution error occurs seems to be fairly cultural in how it's baked into the culture, how you think about other people's behaviors. And Western culture looks like it it's more likely to commit the fundamental attribution error, whereas other cultures, at least in India where this is observed, but probably other Eastern cultures tends to look at the circumstantial variables. Yeah, absolutely. And so another study found that students did not make fundamental attribute errors as often after watching a movie, but were just as likely to make the same error after attending a lecture on fundamental attribution error. So that's interesting. Like once they learn about it, they're still more likely to make an error based on the thing they just studied. The implication that I derived from this study was that people are less likely to make fundamental attribution error when they receive sort of a narrative story about someone. Versus if they just receive facts in like a lecture-based format, then they actually don't really change their behavior. So there's something important about the sort of the narrative structure of story that I think helps to communicate that idea well. And there's implications to this for uh, teachers and communicating these ideas in science. So that's why we had to use Rush Limbaugh to tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that we took one for the team for y'all. That's right. I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> so another study, McPherson and Young in 2004 in the journal Communication Quarterly found that students interpreted the overt anger from a teacher directed toward themselves, so directed toward the students, as being due to those dispositional or character factors of the teacher. So just an angry person, essentially, is what they were saying. So in the study, they basically had students come in and a teacher comes in and just yells at them and puts them down or even would use passive aggressive, whatever it was, it was angry, aggressive and toward the students. However, when teachers would calmly discuss what the problem was with the students, the students actually very quickly assigned situational variables to that teacher's behavior. So hmm. 
in the one group, if the teacher was like rude and angry and overtly displaying the anger, then the stu- the students were like, "You're our jerk teacher, and you're just a mean person." And if the teacher was like, "Here's the problem in the breakdown. This is what happened, and this is why it's a problem," and they were calm and sort of collected about it, the students were like, "These students were misbehaving. We did this wrong. Like things went badly, and that's why the teacher's lecturing us." And so. It was a really interesting implication here that I think is really important. And one way that this is described, this this tendency to assign internal versus external factors, depending on your perspective that we've been talking about this whole time, right? (laughs) It's called asymmetry, which makes sense. So it's not symmetrical. On one side, you have internal factors. On the other, external, depending on what your perspective is. So they call that asymmetry. Now, this is biased to interpret those causal factors as potentially personal circumstantial or external based on the study. The implication is that the, the tendency to assign those causal variables as being characteristic is moderated by whether or not that person's behavior is directed toward us or towards someone else, mm-hmm. and whether that behavior that the person is engaging in is being judged as good or bad. And that is, if we can extract some interpretation from this, we make the fundamental attribution error. We assume internal causes as opposed to external ones when someone is being aggressive, particularly toward us. That's, I think, one takeaway we could potentially have as an outcome of that study. Essentially what that says is if somebody is lashing out at me, it's because they are angry. But if somebody is lashing out at somebody else, what happened to make them lash out at somebody else? Like there's something else that happened. It's not that that person's angry. So it's kind of this interesting thing where as soon as it, as soon as the lens is on us, we're like, no, it can't be environmental. It's gotta be. This person is just a problem. Right. And we might still, I mean, it's hard to say from this, people might still think that someone lashing out at someone else is, they might still assign some of those characteristics, but when they're being calm about it and collected and rational, or at least appear in that way, then we're much less likely to make that assumption as well. So something about the aggressiveness of it and the direction of it seem to be really important here. Yep, absolutely. So, I mean, now that we've kind of spent a lot of time highlighting why this is an issue or kind of where it comes from, how do you fix this? Like, we have to take some time to look at, like, how to work against this, knowing this thing exists and knowing that it's not an accurate depiction of the world around us. Right. Okay. So here's a few strategies that you can use, or at least some things to keep in mind that might help you overcome the likelihood that you would engage in this and the fundamental attribution error. The first one is acknowledge that you never have all the information. You have just what you've observed in that context, and you're missing something. So just in acknowledging that you're missing something is a huge step that can be helpful. So just think next time that as soon as you start thinking like what a person is, that you are missing some piece of information. And another one too is is give people the benefit of the doubt and reserve judgment. Because again, if you don't have all the information, like they, you know, I always kind of attribute or subscribe to the idea that people are doing the best they can under their circumstances. Right. And so if you kind of always keep that in mind, like people are doing the best they can in those under those circumstances, that's giving people enough benefit of the doubt to maybe take a second to stop before going like, oh, that person's definitely a Karen to saying that person might be a Karen, but they, but there's a reason some, something happened to turn them into a Karen uh, or that they are acting like a Karen, that they are not always a Karen, but they're acting like a Karen right now. And that's, and that's a concern. We should fix those contexts. So they stop acting like a Karen. Another thing that you can do is try and investigate to find more information so that you can get the context that you need to understand. So, I mean, obviously this isn't going to work in every circumstance. If someone's driving, you're not going to like chase them down and be like, Hey, 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 Hey. <laughs> Tell me why you why? do what you do. Yeah. 
why, why, why you why you do why you do that but when it makes sense like particularly when it's someone that you're going to work with a lot maybe or it's a significant other or a friend just investigate more see if you can better understand that context that would be another thing that can help you identify what those external factors are because they're there you just need to find them yeah another one too and this is something we try to practice a lot is this idea of perspective taking just considering different pressure circumstances education all of those things i mean at the end of the day we kind of you can recognize that maybe problem behaviors occur because there's a skill deficit somewhere most of the time. And so when you kind of approach it from that perspective and kind of take a step back and be like, there are external factors that are operating on that particular behavior. When you can kind of do that and and remove yourself from that judgment piece, it really goes a long way for being empathetic to people. Yes. Love it. The last one I'm going to go over here is a strategy where you assume that there is a reasonable explanation for what someone is doing and try to understand it. So start with the idea that there are external variables and circumstances and try to understand what those might be. So as soon as you see someone doing something, start hypothesizing some circumstances that would influence them to make that choice. What would have you be that way? And even if you're wrong about what specifically led to them doing that, whatever action is or behavior, you'll be more correct than assuming it's just who they are. Right. Absolutely. So a lot of times when I see people driving in a way that is very irritating, I'll, sometimes I, I'll jokingly say, but very much for me to overcome this is like, wow, this must be your first time driving a car. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and that makes the most sense to me that you would drive like that because you've never done it before. And that's, that's sort of a joke that I do understanding that I'm wrong, but really actually thinking about like, okay, you probably didn't see that I was here. You probably have to get somewhere and thought like, should I slow down and wait and potentially block other people behind me? Or should I try and zip ahead and find room so I can get over because this lane's going to end and I need to be here. I'm going to miss my exit. Whatever the circumstance might be, they had to make a choice in that moment. And if you try and hypothesize what that might be, then you're much more likely to make a correct guess than just assuming it's just who that person is. So using a quick mnemonic device here, there are five things we listed. A for acknowledge, B for benefit of the doubt, I for investigate, P for perspective taking, and A for assume a reasonable explanation, which gives you a BIPA as <laughs> 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 your acronym. <laughs> but those are the strategies for trying to avoid making fundamental attribution error. I like it. I like it. So, you know, within that, you know, like we always try to provide that other side too. like, so we want to provide a little bit of insight on just some criticisms and some rebukes to the idea of fundamental attribution error. And the first one comes from Epstein and Tara Spolsky in 1986, which is a really good year. I think probably the best year. (laughs) This is the year after back to the future came out, I think. And what year was the first Ghostbusters movie. I think it was 86. Awesome. Then good year. I'll take it. Let's real time fact check this. Okay. Oh, it came out in 1984. I lied. So, I mean, it was two years old when I came around. So anyway, I was born in 86. That's why it was such a great year. What about Ghostbusters 2? I think that was 89. Was it the five years away? No. Sorry, folks. We're going to, we're going to fact check this so hard right now. Yeah, it is 89. So that came out the year my brother was born. And then Ghostbusters Afterlife is coming out in 2021. So there's that. I'm going to look up best movies in 1986. Manhunter Short Circuit. Stand, <laughs> <laughs> Stand by me. Top Gun. 
The Labyrinth. That's a good one. Yeah. Flight of the Navigator. Howard the Duck. <laughs> yeah, 86 was a kind of a messy year. Oh, Aliens came out in 86. Aliens rules. Aliens still gives me nightmares. I still have nightmares about the xenomorphs. Aliens for the win. Okay. So <laughs> they basically had people evaluate not just their opinion of a person's motivation to act, but also how much they knew about the situation and their confidence in their opinion. And they found that participants were very good at judging how little they knew and that their level of confidence in their answers matched their answers. So it's interesting, like as you kind of start analyzing or, or kind of digging into those situations, people tend to think that they really they understand what's going on or they know what's happening. Yeah. What I like about this one is it takes the very idea of someone saying, oh, they did it because they're a bad person. And they say, okay, how confident are you in that as your answer? And they say, not very, I don't have enough information. And so as soon as you actually ask someone even very simply straightforward, what makes you think that then they say like, I don't know, I, I don't really know very much. I just see that this is what's happening. And so they're really good at knowing that they don't actually know what's going on. So it's not just that they assume that and they're like, that has got to be the answer. I'm sticking to my guns. They know that like this is like my first impression and it's not a good one. And so I think that that throws a pretty big wrench in this idea here is is looking at not just did they say it, but did they how strongly do they feel that way about it? They also noted in that study that participants explained that they use strategies, specific strategies to try and arrive at their conclusions about the person's motivation that they're observing. So if they saw someone doing something, then they had some kind of logical reason for trying to deduce why they were doing that. And even if they were making fundamental attribution error in some way, they could sort of logically describe why they arrived at that by saying like, well, think about these things. And if this was the case, then that wouldn't be the, then, you know, I'm just sort of making hypotheticals. So there's too many what ifs in there. But the, the fact that they would try and logically break through, it made a lot of sense in terms of understanding why they arrived at the fundamental attribution error that they did. In another study, in a large meta-analysis, which sounds like the most tedious type of study to do. <laughs> yeah. Is it pronounced male? Molly? Mally? I'm going to go with Male. In 2006, reviewed 173 studies of fundamental attribution error and found that the effect size of fundamental attribution error ranged from a negative 0.016 to a 0.095, which averages just slightly better than zero. Which is very weak. So... Thinking of this as sort of a percentage, this means it was negative 1.6% to positive almost 1%. And usually you want this to be on the order of 50 or 60%, maybe 100, you know, 90, you never get 100%, but one is a perfect, you know, 100% is, is as much as you can get. So the fact that they were averaging zero is very weak. So this researcher noticed that the effect was only present. The fundamental attribution error only occurred under certain circumstances in the 173 studies that this researcher studied or evaluated for this meta-analysis. And that was when the observed person was behaving in a way that was fairly extreme or at least odd, then you'd get some of this fundamental attribution error. When the situation was hypothetical, rather than a real situation. So if you just described a situation to someone and ask them to make a judgment and when the actor and the observer were intimate, which is one that kind of confused me, I'm not entirely sure why that would be the case. Yeah. Another one is when the responses from the people who were doing the observing were coded by the researcher. That means that they sort of would interpret their responses to mean something and they gave themselves a lot of latitude to make decisions about what kind of, 
judgment of like how to apply that person's comments. So they sort of gave themselves degrees of freedom there. And then finally, as noted before, they observed that asymmetry, the fundamental attribution error, when the event was negative, more so when it was positive. So again, the research shows with multiple studies in this meta-analysis that when the observer is doing something that's aversive or aggressive, then that's more likely to be interpreted as being a characteristic versus if they're doing something positive. So really interesting distinction there. As you can see, it's just kind of a funny, I don't want to say theory, but it's an interesting effect that it sounds like people are still struggling to really study or understand. Probably most people feel like this is an observable effect and most social psychologists and whatnot are pretty comfortable with the fact that it takes place. And I think that's fine. I think that we've definitely showed that it at least does exist in some sense, in some capacity. And I think that we've some of these other researchers have really brought an appropriate lens of nuance and critical analysis to understand under what parameter, like what are the parameters, the circumstances under which we engage in this. So I think it's, you know, sort of attacking fundamental attribution error with fundamental attribution error <laughs> yeah. to say, like, you know, to try and understand, like, what are the circumstances under which this takes place, which I think is interesting. So and actually that actually brings up a really good point that I just thought of is that saying that people just do this, this fundamental attribution error, is itself <laughs> fundamental attribution error, not considering their circumstances. So these nuances, I think, are important. So if you didn't pick this up, Christopher Nolan directed this episode where we just get <laughs> looped into, we just get stuck in our own loops. <laughs> That's right. Moving backwards and forwards through time. I realized that time plays a very big factor in pretty much all of his movies. The only one where it's not really obvious are the Batman trilogy. Except for, I, I would say, maybe in Dark Knight Rises when Batman breaks his back and then he recovers in rapid time. <laughs> I feel like that's probably like a time jump type of thing there. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. <laughs> all right. So you want to do some take home points about this? Because, I mean, we've covered a lot already, especially about we Rush have. Limbaugh. <laughs> Take home points about Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, I think that's great. So I think the main one here is that fundamental attribution error is a thing that occurs, at least in some circumstances. It is when is the tendency for us to observe behavior and assume that when someone else is doing something, that it is due to something inherent about that person. And when we are doing something, then we are doing it because we have justified reasons and circumstances that influence us. And I think another thing, too, is I think it's really important to take a step back and recognize that in order to accurately understand and contextualize any sort of observable event, you should look at what's happening and not characteristics like what is being done, not who that person is. That will give you so much more information and will be so much more valuable in helping resolve a situation. But just pay attention to what's being done, not what that person is. For those of you not watching this, I was nodding my head so vigorously it looked like I was headbanging. Yes. To, to Listening that. to the new Spirit Box record. Don't know who that is, but I'll, I'll follow up with you later. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my big take-home points is just thinking about how to overcome our tendency to do this, and that is to look at every time that we try and catch ourselves doing it when we're engaging in fundamental attribution error and try and understand that we're missing information and hypothesize what the circumstances could be for that person when we're making that mistake. Cause I think it's very easy tendency to fall into. I think that nails it. Like, I, I mean, I think the only other take on point I would say is maybe don't listen to Rush Limbaugh's like podcast or whatever show he's got. I mean, if you want to, you can, I guess, but because I don't like what he does, not because of who he is. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I do have one more take on point, which is that just that there's a lot of nuance to this, that the circumstances under which it occurs seems to be not so black and white, just as that we do it. 
but that people are more likely to do it when they have less information, when it's aggressive, when it's oriented toward the observer, and that we're better at understanding things when we sort of understand the story narrative arc, which was that that one of the students. Yeah. And then yeah, that there's some there's also some criticism about how robust of an effect this really is based on some of the research that people have done showing that people actually do think logically a lot of the time <laughs> when they are doing doing this. They they have some reason at least. And yeah. that the effect is very small unless you have some relatively extreme circumstances. Yep, absolutely. I think that wraps it up nicely. Okay, let's get to some recommendations. Recommendations. So I am recommending a book called The Way of Kings by okay. author Brandon Sanderson. This is straight fantasy, <laughs> just purely fantasy. And it is one of the longest books I've ever sit down to read. It's over 1,200 pages. Wow. Yeah. I just finished it recently at the time of this recording. I'm already a good chunk of the way into the next book in the series. This is yeah part of a series. There are four books out currently. I'm sh- There's probably going to be more. I'm not sure. But it is a very, very rich fantasy world that he created. And, and I've read just he, he sunk so much time into th- working out the sort of rules and structure and the system of magic and like how things like the, the cultures and the languages and the animals and the plants, like it is a totally different world that is just, it's super cool to explore and read about. And I've been really enjoying it. The, the series is called the stormlight archives. Brandon Sanderson also wrote the last three books. I think his last three books of the wheel of time series, which is one of my favorite fantasy series. And so I think I'm highly recommending The Way of Kings and and I guess more generally The Stormlight Archive of Life. I've only read the first book so far. I like it. I know we've talked about The Wheel of Time a few times, so I'm yeah. I'm stoked to check this out. All right. Mine is nice and simple. One of the things that fulfills me a lot is doing things that I like to do, like creative things, even though I'm not super creative myself. I do like to collaborate with people on things. And so my recommendation is just doing something creative with creative people. I had recently picked up a book of collected poetry from like indie authors that I think is really neat. And just the collection looks really nice. I have been connecting with people talking about doing some really interesting, like science, like fanzines. And so just some, just creative pursuits like that, writing music, drawing, painting, just anything like that is a lot of fun. And what I would say is, is that if you are not an inherently creative person like myself, you know, one of the things that Quest Love talks about in his book is just doing something. Just get it started. Just get the engine started and start moving on something. And even if it's trash or even if it's something you don't like, at least you're doing something. And you might find that maybe something within that works well for you or maybe some other pursuit that's creative will work for you. So just do something creative, do it with creative people and just have fun with it. Can we bonus recommend the Quest Love book, which I haven't read, but it's on my list. Yes. Bonus recommend. It's awesome. It is so, so good. And what's it called? Creative Quest. Nice. I love that. Yeah. And it's literally like, it's not based in like, he's not like citing a bunch of research. He's like, this is what I do. I'm a drummer. I'm a, I'm a professor. This is what I am. I'm a DJ at night. And I also like food. Here's what I do. <laughs> do these things. This is what's helpful for me. And it's just a lot of fun to read because Quest Love rules. Yeah. Good drummer. Seems like an awesome person. Gotta love the Quest Love and show some appreciation there. All right, very good. If you have anything on Quest Love or doing creative things or Rush Limbaugh, then we would definitely love to hear from you. If you engage in fundamental attribution error, 
or have a strategy for for preventing that from happening, please share it with us. We definitely like to communicate that to others. If you have anything you'd like to correct us on or add to this conversation or any other episode or even suggest future episodes, please email us at info at www.podcast.com. That's also our handle on all the social media things. So please reach out to us because we love hearing from people. We write back and we share your messages and we're super engaging and we're just That's true. a bunch of mushroomy fun guys. So please, <laughs> <laughs> stupid puns, please reach out to us. If you like our show, please leave us a rating and review. Many people have done that. We really appreciate it. And if you haven't already, like and subscribe and all that good stuff. Do you have anything else, Dr. Shane? Nope, not today, Dr. Abraham. Perfect. Then we are out of here. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. We're going to define fundamental. We're going to define. Fu- oh my god! <laughs> fundamental attribution error. Okay. Why you do what you do? Why you do what you do? <laughs> but why you do? But why you do? <laughs> I don't know why I thought that was really funny. <laughs> but why you do what you do?